I'm Cody Royal, and this is the Where Others Won't podcast. This episode is a one-on-one discussion about technology in sport and features Angela Ruggiero, Olympic hockey gold medalist with Team USA, Hockey Hall of Famer, and co-founder of the Sports Innovation Lab. This episode is sponsored by Leaders in Sport, who have a special offer for you later in the show. But for now, enjoy the conversation. Angela, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me, Cody. Pleasure to be on. Yeah, looking forward to this one. I'll, I'll start here. I want to get to the Sports Innovation Lab, which is the, the big ticket item for you at the moment. But one of the most popular aspects of my book was the section about Bridgewater Associates and traditionally a very private organization. And recently, Ray Dalio has opened up. He's written books. He's talking a lot more. He's done a TED Talk on you know the inner workings of the team. After you retired from your hockey career, you spent just over a year there. What did that do to you in terms of your learning around how teams work? You'd come from high-performing teams in the sports world and you're able to observe and, and um, you know, focus on transparency and, and accountability on the business side. So how was that process for you? Because there's a lot of people that are interested in this company and, and how it's worked and, and what it's really like on the inside. Yeah, uh, I think, you know, having spent uh, my hockey career, you know, competing in four Olympics and really being um, data driven in how I approached my training. Uh, I went back to Harvard Business School. I had the opportunity to apply for an internship at Bridgewater. And um, and, and when I was there, I recognized that uh, Ray Dalio and, and Bridgewater took similar approach to really understanding people, a uh, data driven way to understand people and groups. And, um, you know, Ray talked a lot about systematizing management and, and really understanding um, data of groups and how people work together um, really, um, uh, you know, took an in-depth process, even in the interviewing process. What are people like? We took, uh, you know, Myers-Briggs and, and what you were expected to understand who you were working with, um, where their strengths lie relative to their weaknesses, um, and, and really this data-driven approach to working as a team made perfect sense for me um, because I obviously when you're playing ice hockey uh, you've got roles you know you've got forwards and defense and goalies and um, and and strengths and weaknesses and and to be a successful ice hockey team to win an Olympic gold medal you got to really understand uh, how, how you best mesh together and Bridgewater I think you know really took that philosophy that, that was successful for me on the ice and trying to do that off the ice in uh in their, their management structure. So it was, it was, a, it was a fascinating uh, time when I was there and, and took some of my learnings, obviously, at Bridgewater and uh, are using that now at the Sports Innovation Lab. That's really interesting. I love that idea of understanding who you're working with and, and relating that back to data because that's kind of the, the big thing now is we've come to this realisation in the business world that it is all about people and there's this kind of thought that, uh, we need to get back to you know some of the social aspects, but there is a data aspect to it as well, and we can measure certain things about how groups work and understanding of groups, like you mentioned, and understanding who you're working with, and and there's a quantifiable piece to that as well. 
Uh, I guess my next question, how has, you know, your work post-career made you look back at even the idea of achievement? Because you've achieved a lot on, on the ice. And do you look back differently in terms of what you achieved and the teams that you, you know, cherish memories of now that you've kind of built on this idea of, of how teams operate? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, when I look back in my hockey career and think about the times we were most successful, um, it, it wasn't necessarily we had the best skill on the ice. And I think that's really one of the best learnings I ever had um, or can take with me now from my, my hockey careers. When we were successful, we were actually a team. We had roles and responsibilities. We knew what our swim lanes were. We weren't caught, you know, we weren't um, scared to call out people when they weren't doing their jobs and, and very, um, uh, you know, loved to call out people when they were. Um, we were supportive um, yet critical and, you know, when we needed to be. And, and, and all that boiled down to trust. When we trusted each other, you could get to those, you know, when you had that meaningful relationship with your teammates, um, when you all knew you were going for the same goal. When all that alignment was there, it's easier to have these hard conversations, easier to say, all right, I'm not playing this game, but I'm going to support everyone around me and, and be, you know, have a smile on my face, easier to, um, you know, work together. And ultimately that learning uh, is, I think, exactly what you need in the workforce, in business, is um, clear alignment of goals, you know, a willingness to play your role. I mean, certainly you need to know your role. Um, and be mindful of, of metrics too. I, I, you know, I'm big on metrics of, you know, how do you know you're succeeding or failing? We, in hockey, you had the benefit, you could watch game tape, right? You could play your game and then stop and pause and be reflective and analyze that tape of team. And, um, in real life that you don't have game tape, you, you really have to be methodical and make time for learning. And that's when you succeed as well as when you fail. I think we have a tendency to do that just when you fail but but you certainly uh need to do that on both sides um so yeah all my experience on on the ice um you know these intangibles i think athletes get to practice over and over and succeed and fail in really a relatively risk-free environment um you know if we lose a game you lose a game you get back up um yeah it hurts your ego it hurts you know you're you you're upset um because you're putting your life into something but uh but, you know, in business, you could, people could lose jobs. Um, you know, there's, there's more, I think, at stake and, and, you know, relatively speaking. So, um, so I love that I had that experience and I got to play more games than any other man or woman in a USA Jersey and use all of those intangible skills now and, uh, try to apply them at least to, uh, to my, to my work. Supportive yet critical. I love that. I've never heard it put like that before. That's, uh, that's perfect. In talking about that, though, what do you think the biggest barriers are? Because this is what my book is all about. How do we take the ideas that come from team sports and translate them? They don't need to be direct translations, but they need to be adapted for the corporate world because there's, there's a lot of ideas that we have in sport. And I'm talking global sport. You know, we tend to focus in North America mm-hmm. on, on the big four or the big five. But how can we take ideas that they've been using in GAA football in Ireland or Aussie rules in Australia and, and tear down the barriers for those ideas to make it into the workforce? Because there are some really smart, really intelligent ideas that come from sport. 
Yeah, and I don't think it's professional. I think it's amateur. I think it's Olympic. I think it's women's. I think it's youth. I mean, sport to me is sport. There's, you've got again, you're 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 on a field, you're on the ice, you're you're, uh, and and I, I, you know, I'm focused more on team sport because I think that's more relative to the working world. Of course, individuals you can argue have a team around them, but um, but in team sport, you, we learn this as a kid. You learn this when you're a child. You learn that you're going to fail and that's okay. You're going to learn, you're going to fall and that's okay. And um, there, so for me, it's more of what happens in the locker room. How does the coach, how does your boss, how does the organization set you up for success? Um, And, you know, I love how you're posing this, which is there's tons of metaphors and even the way I'm speaking, they're generalizations um, of, Oh, you need to have a common goal. And what does that actually mean when you break it down? Does that mean that the company that you're working with does, can everyone actually articulate what your vision is, what your mission is? Like, what is the timetable on that? Are they aligned with what are they even working towards? Right. So what I, what I would say is, is take these metaphors that we hear all the time in sport, which I think are absolutely true and very, very aligned to business, but see if you have an internal process that actually um, makes those metaphors come to life. Um, you know, if, if, if you're talking about, does everyone know their roles on the ice, right? Does everyone know what position they're playing? Okay. Yeah. Generally you have a title, you know, where you are in the organization, but if you break that up, you know, every sword is not going to act exactly the same. You have to break that down into smaller steps and smaller roles and, um, and, and ways that you know that you're supporting the team and helping ultimately your organization be successful. So, um, I think we can learn a tremendous amount from all levels of sport and um, that the hardest part is translating those lofty metaphors into actual practices that you can see results for in your, in your organization. Um, so, you know, when you said, when I talked about earlier about watching game tape, um, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. You look back at, you know, did we win this game? Did we lose? What did we do? Right. What do we do wrong? How are we going to improve? Um, what should we keep doing that worked? Does your organization have, you know, moments where they pause after a big pitch or after a big win? You know, you got a big a new client and like analyze what you did right to get that client or analyze what you did wrong when you lost that client. So making time and space to do the things that, um, that you know, in sports, you, you absolutely make time and space for. I think in an organization where there's so many moving parts, um, you know, having the discipline to do that, I think is always the hardest part. Yeah. My mission from this book has been to turn what we do in sport from that motivation category into an action category. Mm-hmm. And you yep, know, I love it. You'll, you'll know this. I live in Toronto. And so what companies do here is they bring in the hockey player and they get a motivational talk. And it's just, it's a cookie cutter, you know, bring the hockey player in and he'll make our team perform better. But I want that to move to, to more action-based. And what can we actually learn from Wendell Clark and his experience in playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs in terms of what it's like to be on teams and, and fail together and the dialogue that that creates. Mm-hmm. And is it really interesting at the moment because there's been this collision and this is why I wanted to talk to you about Bridgewater, you know, Ray's book and Radical Candor and all these business books that are coming out, basically describing what we've done in sport for decades. It's finally starting to make its way in, uh, but I think there's there's a lot more as well. Um, 
so yeah, that, that's kind of become my mission through this is to to do that translation for people because you know, I'm lucky I've seen I've seen inside locker rooms and I've seen inside boardrooms and and I can translate it for you and um, yeah, so that's uh, I love what you said there because I'm I'm on the same page. To me, it's it's taking all the energy or the motivation or if you have a great visionary leader, you've got you know Wendell Clark coming in and getting everyone excited, it's giving them giving the rest of the organization something to do with that energy and a clear path to, um, uh, to align on what needs to get done to actually move the company forward, move the team forward. Um, Cause I've seen a lot of inspirational speeches or even internally, you know, you, you people are excited about the, the year, but um, making sure that they're, they're going in the right direction collectively, I think is really hard to do. But what you're saying is like, it's, it's creating that, and and that alignment of action. Absolutely, yeah. It's a it's a big challenge, but it's an exciting one for sure. So Whitney Johnson introduced us. I love Whitney. She's one of my favorite people. She's obviously deep into the whole disruptive innovation space, and something that's disruptive at the moment is technology and sport. If you follow sport in any way, shape, or form, this is what they're talking about. And so you've co-founded the Sports Innovation Lab there in Boston. I want to talk to you about that, but to start with, I'm going to ask you to, to explain from a Simon Sinek perspective, what's the why behind the Sports Innovation Lab and, and then how have you ended up there? I love the, uh, the reference, Simon. Uh, he's, he's obviously inspired a lot of people. Um, yeah, the why behind the Sports Innovation Lab, we, so I, as you've heard me speak, I, I was very data-driven when I played ice hockey um, I think it really helped me continue to learn. You know, you talk about the 10,000 hours. Um, I think you can shorten that by really understanding the data behind, you know, cause and effect in your training and, and, and everything else. And so I, I've, I've always really loved um, that approach. I went back to, uh, to business school. I, um, I spent eight years on the International Olympic Committee, the, the governing body for the Olympic movement. I was on the executive board there and um, most recently, Chief Strategy Officer of the Los Angeles uh, Olympic bid. Uh, we successfully got the games for, for 2028. And through all this sort of business experience, when I was in the boardroom or working in the business side of sports, I recognized that there wasn't um, the same data-driven approach off the ice, right? As, as, you know, performance, you expect it now. We're all, you know, second nature. Yeah, yeah, athletes should understand their bodies. But I didn't see that same rigor um, and, and analytical approach to understanding what I believe is the most disruptive thing to ever happen to sports, which is technology. You know, technology is changing everything about the way that fans will now engage with sports content, um, with, with athletes, it's changing venues, it's, it's changing the athletes themselves and how they train. And so I just saw this massive influence of technology but no one out there could, that could help me understand it. And so when I met my co-founder, Josh Walker, he came from uh, Forrester Research, a market research company. Um, he built software. And we said, you know what, if we could combine our forces, my understanding of, of the sports world and the business world, and his understanding of, of research and software, and create, um, you know, really the world's first data-driven market intelligence company, for the sports industry, that's what we wanted to do. I wanted to help the industry that I love, that's given so much to me, 
um, provided me so many opportunities. Um, I wanted to enable leaders that were making these really important decisions to have more a better understanding of the technology that will shape the future of sports. And so that's really the why. It's, it's staying in the industry that I love, giving me so much. Take a data-driven analytical, you know, business approach um, to helping these people really understand the, 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 the thing that's going to shape, you know, sports for, for years to come. Love it. So from an operational perspective, how does this all work for you? Kind of explain to uh, our audience, you know, how you guys are going to go about delivering this change um, and how you work with organizations and, and even individuals within the sports world. The big, the big aha for me was um, similar to Ray Dalio. Think about this. If you can systematize management, systematize the way you invest, you can scale that. Systematize means you can scale an idea. You can scale uh, information. And so rather than have you rely on Angela's opinion or a consultancy that has great methodology but is really relying on people, we said let's focus on data itself. Let's build a software platform that the world can access and give them tools, give them data tools that will, again, allow them to, to quickly understand the products, the people, the companies influencing um, all different parts of the sports ecosystem. What we are is a software company at our core. You can get a login and, and, and you, you have access to our team as well because in some ways you say, that's great for the data. I need someone to help me analyze that in, in more depth. So we have a, a services component to our business. But what we're trying to do is aggregate hun- the hundreds of sources that exist. Um, think about if you actually wanted, say you were in a, you were in a, a smart venue owner op- operator, you operated a venue and you needed to make sure that you had the latest and greatest food and beverage, the latest and greatest Wi-Fi, the latest and greatest um, way to keep your venue safe, um, the latest and greatest way to actually engage with your fans through new emerging technologies that exist. To stay on top of that, to me, with a brain, your human brain is next to impossible. Uh, I would say if you're not overwhelmed, you're not paying attention. So our, our clients understand that they're like, there's so much out there, we need help. And so our software allows us to say, we'll keep track of partnerships, emerging companies, uh, financial information, we'll keep track of, of breaking news. We'll organize all those different data sources, um, synthesize it for you and alert you really when something important to you really personal to you uh, is, 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 uh, has happened in the industry. So we're, cre- we're basically creating a, a personalized data engine for the sports industry um, to know when things that they should care about are happening globally. And that's all founded on technology again. Um, my big thing, again, I talk about the why. I play women's hockey. And not a lot of women played hockey when I was growing up. Um, uh, there wasn't, you know, it wasn't completely accessible uh, as a young girl. I, you know, I got cut from teams as a girl and still I'm in the sports industry. It's very male dominant. And so one thing core to me is I want everyone to have access to sports, regardless of gender or socioeconomic status or race or anything else. And and that sort of who I am as a person, I think, is, is, is part of why we're building a technology company. I want every 
not just the big leagues and, and, and certain sports have access to this information. I want it to trickle down to every organization, even youth sports organizations, even startups, technology startups. We work with a lot of big companies like Intel and Google and IBM, and, and I'm so happy to help these leaders. But I also want our platform to service startup technology companies um, who have very important decisions to make. Um, and, and by providing a service that's scalable, um, you know, ultimately I want to help everyone. So that's sort of the core to why we're, we're building our, our company on technology. And I'm really excited that, um, that we're able to offer something that no one's ever done before. That's wonderful. And I think going back to our original idea in terms of being disruptive, I think that you've only just hit on kind of the um, you know, one portion of it. And there is such a, a huge societal impact that this can bring as well in terms of just to bring together a couple of the ideas we've already talked about, what teams can do for people from a young age and understanding the dynamics of society and understanding different cultures and, and races and genders and, and, and operating as a team. You know, it's not just a sport thing. You know, I always use the example that driving on the road is a team sport. And one of the, one of the annoying things about Toronto is that people will drive into an intersection on an amber light and they'll stop in the middle. And that's a, that's a team dynamics thing. It's not just a, a you know, a bad driving thing. It's, an, it's a, an understanding of how teams operate and how the system operates as a whole. And I think what, what you guys are going to be able to do with all this data and, and all this information is impact sports certainly, but also impact the broader society and bringing new ideas that are validated through data into the, the, yep. the broader world. Yeah, and, and what I love about my job, I get to learn every day, and there are so many amazing sports technology companies that are popping up all over the world, and we're keeping our finger on the pulse on all of them. And so there's these, you know, I get excited every day. I'm like, oh, if this company, we're just a partner with this one, or if this team, we're just to adopt this tech. And, and so we're really looking for leaders in the industry that are leaning into what you just said. I want to make, I want to take my platform of sports and make a, have it more of a societal impact. I want to not just continue to drive revenue to my team. I want to create a global brand. We see a lot of, um, of big sports properties seeing themselves as media entities. And if they can reach fans all over the world now through technology, right, instead of just being locally broadcasted, they can be streamed. They can provide really amazing engagement on their social handles. Um, they can create VR experiences that, you feel like you're with that team. And so if, if there's this really intimate connection that we know sports has to society, by leaning into technology, um, they can enhance those relationships and really, I think, create more of a difference. Um, athletes can go direct to fans now. And we, we know that athletes are role models. We know that they can now create their own media platforms and um really have more of an influence in, in those lives. And again, that's all founded on technology. So what I'm trying to do again in sports innovation lab is, is help the world see regardless of where you are and the stage of the company, what technologies are emerging and doing really cool things that if you are a leader and you want to lean in and you say, well, I do, but I just don't know where to start. I don't know which one I should be spending my money on because there's trade-offs obviously everywhere. 
we're trying to, to, to simplify that process and really um, help you quickly understand the technologies you should be talking to and the ones that, you know what, don't waste your time. Because um, when I was sitting on the sports side, I'm, I myself was going, I don't understand all this stuff. <laughs> right. I, I'm confused. Right. It is confusing. If you don't grow up in the technology world, um, it's it's overwhelming. And so for us to sort of be that middleman, that objective voice um, to say, oh, you're a leader. Maybe you're at, maybe you're at a, a global technology brand and you say, look, if we took, you know, our chips and put them into sports, not only is it a new industry that we could service, but also we could get our message out. We could we could you know, really help people through the metaphors of sports understand the capability of our company. So one, we see a ton of technology companies coming into sports because they recognize that sports is the ultimate global platform and it brings the world together. It doesn't know, you know, it doesn't have a, a language. Um, it's uh, it's uh, a great pedestal to show off, you know, the, what you can actually do. So um, identifying those leaders that are leaning in and, and want to use technology, not just to drive more revenue, which obviously is very important, but to do what you said, have a broader impact is really the, the companies we like working with. I'd love it. I'm a sports super fan and always have been. And pretty much all of the photos of me as a youngster, I'm in <laughs> some sort of kit and usually the full kit. I, I wouldn't just stop at the jersey. There'd be the shorts and the socks and everything as well. So I want to dive into some of these things with you for, for me as a fan. So you've mentioned fan engagement, venue, you've got the, the quantified athlete piece, which I really want to touch on with you. And, and there's some leadership aspects within coaching that I love, uh, consumption as well in terms of television. But let's start with, with fan. Uh, who's, who's doing good work in this space? Fan engagement is, if again, if you've if you follow sport in any way, shape, or form, this is a term that's being shoved down your throat at the moment and is the, the centerpiece for everyone in the industry. Who's doing interesting work in, in fan engagement at the moment in, in your mind? Like who, who are you kind of, whether you're working with them or not, who are you following going, geez, that's interesting? Yeah, I think um, it's hard to answer that question in isolation. I think what we really look at are um, – who's understanding how the fan, the consumer change is changing. So if you look at by even age demographic, you know, Gen Z, they've, they're digitally native. They grew up with the internet and phones and it's the only way they know how to operate. But yet most of the sports industry is, you know, they're, they're baby boomers or they're even millennials are quote unquote getting old. <laughs> um, so but the, the real, so what we're looking at is like, okay, how are consumers globally changing, right? If I don't carry cash anymore, I just carry my phone. I might have a credit card with me, but I expect to be able to pay cashless. Yet if sports isn't leaning into like that societal change, they're going to get left behind or not be able to actually um, get the most out of that consumer, that fan. Um, if they're not understanding that how the fan actually wants a personalized um, experience, not just a generic one. Now they're going to miss out or, or that fan is going to turn to other entertainment options that actually are personal examples. I love to lean into are like, you know, why are young kids playing Fortnite? Why are they playing esports? I don't get it. Well, if you look at what esports actually is, it's, it's a, it's a community. There's a, there's a, there's a technology platform where you can find a community, talk to your friends, engage with that athlete. Um, 
and and have a very personalized experience while you're in there. Well, traditional sports don't do that. They just stream content or or broadcast content and expect you to take it or leave it. This is how it is. It's not as personal as it should be. It's not as social, right? It's not as dynamic. Um, so there's a there's a lot of terms that we're pulling out and saying like who's doing the things that we've defined as immersive as um, as the, you know, this more um, accessible, engaging, personalized um, expectation of the next generation fan. And so with that sort of premise, you know, we look at what, um, um, you know, like the NBA is an example. I, I love referring to the fact that they said, okay, younger consumers don't pay, they cut the cord or they don't own, they're not paying for broadcast rights, but they still want to watch the NBA. Okay, they might take, you know, they might watch clips on, on social, but how can we actually capture that audience and, and understand that audience? So what they did is they said, okay, you can buy the fourth quarter for 99 cents because we know that younger people don't want to pay for the whole thing. They want to pay for what they're actually consuming, which is typically just the fourth quarter. They don't want to sit through a whole game. Um, and so they're breaking up that price point and saying, okay, here's a personalized way you can pay as you go. You can only pay for what you what you buy or what you're using the, the fourth quarter. And you can pick the games you actually care about. You don't have to pay for everything. And so they they took an approach this this general approach that again we're seeing of fan engagement, saying what do those fans actually want? Let's give that to them in a way that they that they're asking. And that's that ninety nine cent fourth quarter package. So that's just one example of like a league that's I think paying more attention to um, how these the, the fans are changing. And, and changing their business model accordingly. Yeah, they've been doing great work for a long time, the NBA. If you kind of step back and, and just look at the history of this, and it's not it's not just this decision in isolation, there's, there's a, a legitimate pathway there for them. Let's talk about the venue side of things, because this is part of that discussion around fan engagement and what's going to make someone actually go to the game. And you've got examples like, you know, the Golden State Warriors offering, you know, certain packages just to be in the stadium without a seat now. And, you know, the the, the model seems to be, you know, going more towards what the Dallas Cowboys are doing in terms of building the star and it's a whole entertainment complex and there's a hospital there and there's all these entertainment options for you and they train mm-hmm. there. Uh, you know, so what can we expect from the venue side of things that are going to bring people in to make them get off their couch so they're not, you know, watching just the fourth quarter. They're actually going there. And, and then what can they expect once they're there? Yeah, so um, so what I would – the word I would use is the next generation stadium, smart venue as we call it, is has to be frictionless. So if you're going to get off your couch where you only have to spend 99 cents uh, <laughs> plausibly <laughs> to watch something um, – there's still the, the, the innate value that sports will always have, which is you're part of something bigger than yourself. You're part of a community. So being in that venue and feeling that energy and seeing those athletes and being a part of that experience is what people want to pay for. What they don't want to pay for is the, the, the pain that it takes to get there and to be a part of that. So the, the smart venue of the future will create a frictionless environment before during and after the event. So what they'll do is, is, you know, I don't know if you, you know, 
Have you been in a Lyft or an Uber? Probably yes. <laughs> those are those are things I, I refer to as like, if you want to pay for parking and the, the ease of getting to a venue, the venue of the future is going to figure out how to get you there through partnerships. Um, they're going to speed you through the line once you're there. You might, um, you're not going to have a paper ticket anymore. You're going to have a, a digital ticket. That might be connected to your biometric data. We see companies like Clear that are allowing you to uh, have been pre-screened, similar to how you've been screened at the airport. So you can walk through a security line with less, um, uh, with, with less time, um, and they know who you are. Now they have your identity, which this scares some people, but I think sports fans will lean into it. Okay, if I'm giving you some of my information, I want a really personalized experience when I'm there. So I've gotten through security. Now they now they know who I am. That might be geolocated on your phone. I have the ability now as an owner-operator to push you um, targeted, um, <clears throat> targeted ads or targeted coupons or targeted engagement. So maybe you know who my favorite player is or my favorite beer or my you, – you know exactly um, how many kids I have with me and, and – you're going to be able to bundle services that are that are going to speak to what I actually care about. And the more you know your fan, the more you'll, you know the 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 more you can actually create a, a way that you can lean into that. What I hate watching, I, I look at um, I look at still photos of venues all the time now. And if you look, what percentage of fans are looking at their phone versus the action? And that to me is indicative of like, are these fans engaged? Can they? Are they? Um, drilled into the content of sports, or are they? Are you? Are you at risk for losing them? So those fans that are leaning in, that aren't on their phones, maybe they want a second screen. I'm very big on AR. Uh, you can maybe throw data at them, but not have them look at a, a separate screen. Um, what are the ways that you can actually engage those fans in a personalized way um, and get them home safely at the end of the day? Get them home in a way that you know they feel like that was a meaningful experience that. We all remember having as a child when our moms or our dads took us to that, that, that sports event and, and, and we cherish those moments. So I don't think those moments are going away. What you mentioned with creating entertainment districts or creating ways that, look, I don't want to buy season tickets anymore. I want to pay as I go. And actually, I don't even want to watch sports. I just want to be around everyone else so I can have a general admission ticket or a sports event. Like those, again, are consumer um, uh, ways that consumers are changing, fans are changing, and those that evolve quickly to understand that and do something about that, take action, I think are the ones that are going to, uh, uh, the venues are that are going to survive. I agree. Absolutely. It's funny that I've thought about this a lot, going back to your point around identity and, and you know, a uh, having access to, to that, whether it's fingerprints or whatever it may be. I'm more scared of the anonymity on the internet than I am of them having my identity. And what I mean by that is mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a whole system built on anonymity. And so I'm more scared of what's going on underneath rather than whether Facebook has my fingerprints or not, or a, a venue has my fingerprints that allow me to, to skip the line. But uh, that's just my perception on it. Um, mm -hmm. Let's go to the athlete piece because this is really interesting as well. There's, there's a lot of data around athletes and we're starting to see maybe a groundswell in terms of them making their way into the public domain, at least to a certain extent. Uh, where are we going on, on this portion of it, whether it's um, 
something that makes its way into broadcast or maybe it's it's uh, you know data that the teams have and the individual athletes have on themselves and how they're using that yeah um it's it's a fascinating space again when i was playing hockey my last olympics i was just starting to use heart rate tracking and um you know be leaning into the products that were hitting the market um today we've We've seen, I think we have over 700 companies in what we call the quantified athlete space. These are companies that are um, monitoring, measuring, predicting performance, preventing injury, um, allowing you to really just understand your body. And um, most of these companies have emerged uh, to help the athlete, certainly, first and foremost. But what you're talking about, what we're seeing now is, is some of this data will always be just for the athlete right? It's medical grade. It's something that shouldn't be shared. Um, but certain layers they're saying, "Eh, actually we should share this with our team, um, because our team in in aggregate, it'll help us better understand our athletes and and provide more personalized way to train, um, train those athletes. And then there's other data sets that we're saying are, are coming off the athlete that there are discussions now with the leagues and the, the players unions about, can we sell that data? Because having an athlete, um, there's a study I, I saw this week, um, you know, if you have heart rate or biometric data pushed to a fan, you're four times more likely to engage with that, that player or that team. So having more data on the athlete um, will allow you not just to be more engaged, but now we're seeing sports betting, right? We're seeing fantasy. Um, knowing more about those athletes, I think, is really um, is going to fundamentally change how uh, we're able to engage with, with these different entities. So, so the data coming off the athlete will definitely be, um, it's all a big debate right now. We're, and we're in the middle of that debate because we service technology companies as well as the leagues and the teams, as well as the, the agencies, you know, rep the athletes. Um, and the data is so valuable. It's just a matter of parsing that and creating standards that, you know, is really the big, the big struggle right now. And, and the reason I, I raise that is one of the reasons we get hired is there's a huge disparity in the accuracy of this data. And some companies claim to solve world peace and they, they're 100% accurate and their algorithm is perfect. And in reality, we know all of that is false. They're, you know, they're, they're trying to, they're over-marketing themselves. But if you, if you pull back the onion, pull back the layers, you realize they're plus or minus 30% in accuracy. And so that's a big disparity if your players' contracts are on the line um, or if you're going to actually be betting on that athlete. There's money, you know, the fans' money's on the line. So there's, we see the future. Certainly we see where this we're all head, but there's a ton of hurdles in between um, from understanding who the right products and companies and technologies you, you should trust, what are the minimum standards, how do you, who owns the data ultimately, um, what could be monetized. Um, but it's incredibly exciting because I think fans will need that data in the future to really stay engaged. And, uh, and it'll just enhance the whole ecosystem at the end of the day. And, and ultimately, again, I was an athlete. It'll help the athlete. It'll help the athlete play longer, play into their 30s and their 40s and, and, uh, and, and really um, push the boundaries of what's possible for human performance. Totally. And I made the case in my book around just a, a simple concept that everyone can associate with in terms of monitoring sleep and how do we take 
that basic concept and move that into the business world. And kind of my argument was move away from this idea of nine to five work and move more towards a, a, an optimized level of performance, which is what we do in sport. We don't care, you know, when the performance is necessarily. Obviously, there's game times, but, um, you know, we're more interested in, in tracking things like that. And, um, yeah, it's, it's all very interesting. One thing that really fascinates me is more the internally facing systems. And, and there's a lot of companies that are working on decoding team dynamics and, and optimizing talent. Um, so I'd love to hear your perception on, on those internally facing systems and, and what the teams are going to be able to do with those and where they're at at the moment. Yeah. Um, so obviously there's the data that the athlete solely owns or is they're using sleep is a great example. I mean, I don't sleep enough now. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but if you knew exactly Angela needed eight hours and 23 minutes to recover from her training and her, you know, her sitting at her desk all day yesterday, (laughs) or (laughs) actually you only need six hours. Um, player load and training data is, is definitely something that, um, what I love about this space is, yeah, it's the, the, the technology itself is being pressure tested with elite athletes, but anyone can use this technology in the future. And, and, and honestly, most of these technology providers want to move into the mass market. Yeah. That's the ultimate goal. Um, but back to your question, there's, there is a, um, you know, again, you, you started this conversation with Bridgewater trying to systematize management. Um, that's exactly what these internal companies are doing with players. They're saying, look, if we have a team and we need everyone to be operating on this date at the highest performance possible, um, they're trying to, again, understand how these interrelated people um, ultimately can work best together at one point in time. And so um, that's why it's it's incredibly complex, Um, but there's companies out there that are trying to, again, put these different data sets together and essentially give a a more data-driven playbook to coaches um, so that they can make those informed decisions and not the old school way, which is a pen and a piece of paper and gut to make these decisions. So um, it's, it's complex, but there's, again, the, the early indicators that we're seeing is there's a lot of capital being deployed in the space. And um, it's exactly the same as, uh, as, as Ray's approach, which is mm-hmm. lots of people, lots of variables. Um, but if you can really understand, you can always override, right? You can always override the GPS system that says go left because you're like, no, actually, I should go right because there's a roadblock over here. <laughs> but that's what these, these, these companies trying to do. Here's as much data as we can create objectively through our technology. It's ultimately up to the coach to decide, you know, what's best. So the human element is, is never going to go away. I think the human, human element should always and will always be a part of of these team decisions. But it's just, again, making a more informed decision. Totally. One, one of the things that fascinated me, and I wrote a blog about this, was I'm Australian, obviously, and, and one of the things that the Socceroos did, they had to qualify for the last World Cup, they had the final knockout game against Honduras. So it was a, a home and away, Honduras to Australia, not an easy flight. Um, but they invested in light therapy glasses that reduced or supposed to reduce the jet lag that the players experienced. So they were going from Honduras back to Sydney to play three days later. And I looked into mm-hmm. it and these are $299 
glasses and they kind of look silly, but ultimately it's all about driving performance. And so my blog was about why aren't companies buying these glasses for their executives that are flying from London to New York to give a big presentation? Like there's, it doesn't need to mm-hmm. be this, this in-depth, you know, trolling through data kind of thing that, that, you know, we can move closer towards performance and, and you know, using technology. It can be small things. How do we eliminate jet lag yeah. so that our, our, our CEO who's pitching, you know, the business to a, a new group of investors, how can they perform better in that pitch? It might be reducing jet lag using $299 glasses. And so th- there's small yeah. steps, baby steps that we can take to get closer to this, you know, without having to spend millions of dollars or, or troll through all the data to get there. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. The mind-body connection, we, we obviously... Uh, take that approach as an athlete, but this is definitely bleeding over into the corporate world and why corporate fitness is now such an an important piece of what all these technology companies are ultimately going after, because it is that simple to me. It's it's what you said before, tracking your sleep. We have a company here in Boston called Whoop that does that for athletes, but anyone can buy that band and, and understand their player load. Um, we have, you know, a company you mentioned with, with glasses. I mean, there's, there are easy ways that you can uh, better predict performance and enable people to be better versions of themselves that are starting in this quantified athlete market, but, but certainly can help everyone. And when you know, your CEO is getting paid millions of dollars and he or she needs to be at prime condition, um, and we all know that if you don't sleep, you're not going to perform. You're, you know, even fighter pilots, there's been studies that they claim they think they're, you know, they're 100%, but, but they're not. And they deal with fractions of a second that, that will impact their performance. So, so giving people the tools um, to be better versions of themselves is what this, this market is all about. And who knows, maybe we'll go into helping the corporate sector understand, uh, understand these technologies. But, the, the, but I love your example of it doesn't have to be so complex. It doesn't have to be – you have to hire a full-time analyst to – it could be very easy, short-term wins that go, huh, I slept better, I performed better. Maybe there's something else out there that I should be looking into. And and to me, you know, again, I look at my career. Um, I did some blood analysis when I was heading into my fourth Olympics. And it, it made me change my diet, like, significantly. I realized there were certain foods I was sensitive to. And... I felt amazing in my fourth Olympics. Mm-hmm. I'm like, and this was my last one. I was 30 at that point. I said, God, I wish I had this data. I wish I knew this when I was 20. Um, how, how, how much better could I have been over the course of my career? But I just didn't have that information. These companies weren't out there. And, and so those, again, that are willing to lean in and say, oh, I've got a pitch. You're talking about corporate environment. How can I be my best on that day? I've got an investor I got to talk to or I've got a client. Um, and it, it, it's, it's about leaning in and, and to doing little things, honestly, Cody, I think some of this too, there's a placebo effect, right? right? If you think you're doing something, <laughs> you're wearing something, you might actually feel better, even if it doesn't do anything. So you, you can't underestimate that as well. <laughs> no, exactly right. And, and that's where there's going back to your point, there's always going to be this human element of it. And you know that may or may not show up in the in the actual data itself, but the, there's a feeling thing that'll never go away that we as humans have, and whether that's placebo or not, uh, doesn't really matter. 
Um, mm-hmm. I think one of the things you and I have in common, we're naturally curious. And um, so I'm interested in kind of what you're curious about outside of this world right now. Like I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and reading up a lot about addiction and and what it does to people and, and, and the mind and how it actually operates. And it's nothing really other than a curiosity from me about learning about it. So what are you kind of naturally curious about at the moment that outside of this sports and data and technology, like what are you reading about and listening to at the moment? Yeah, good question. I, I love learning. I feel like I've always been a um, just wanting to get better. Um, it's just that's just innate in me, and uh, and I think definitely helped me as a helped me as an athlete. Um, you know, I'm curious right now. I'm I think uh, a couple of things. Um, one, uh, food. I've been really interested in in the like what food is and just the whole food system. Um, and I was, you know, I paid attention as an athlete, obviously of all oh, your right blend of carbohydrates and, you know, fats and blah, blah, blah. But I think it, the, 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 the industry has been fascinating for me recently to really understand uh, the defects in the industry. And uh, I don't know, I, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but in the U S it's mass production is, uh, <laughs> is, is the name of the game here. And, right. And when you actually pull that back, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, really, uh, really interested. Um, so that's one I've been really, really leaning into lately. Um, I think in general, um, I'm, I, I love learning about, um, management and, you know, I read a lot of like Harvard business review articles and, um, just taking that, like, what does world leaders do to be successful? And, uh, for me, again, I can talk all day about hockey because I have so much experience there and, and I'm really trying to, um, improve myself as a, as a manager, as a leader, as, you know, someone running sports innovation lab now. And, um, and so I'm, I'm looking at how are the world's best leaders in, in business, uh, doing things differently, whether that's saving time and being more, um, resourceful or, uh, thinking about how they, 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 they deal with their, their employees and their organization. So um, I think I spent a lot of time really focused on that as well. Me too. I, I love that style. I saw recently there was a, a video with Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Bill Gates was talking about what he had learned from Warren and it, and it was that his calendar was next to empty. And so Warren Buffett pulls out his actual calendar, he carries it with him and there's like no bookings <laughs> in it. And yeah, it's really interesting because you can always learn, right? It, it's always changing and, yeah. and um, you know, there's new theories and all that sort of stuff, but there's also ways to get ahead by not following the critical mass and, and actually doing something very different. And, and yeah, I'm fascinated by that stuff as well. Yeah. It, for me, it's like, think about when you were playing sports or I was playing sports, like you looked up to someone and you tried to mimic them, mm-hmm. right? I, I, did um i didn't always have i never had a role model to look up to there weren't women playing hockey i just looked up to hockey players and um just wanted to know what they were doing like how did they get to be where they are and so i think for me you know trying to really understand leadership um generally speaking and you don't have to pick up everything they might tell you to do one thing and i'm like that doesn't make any sense in my world um so i i agree with you there's a bit of um 
mimicking, but there's also a bit of like, you need to trust your gut and your passion. And um, especially if you're in the startup world, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly selling the dream about this company that I, that I wholeheartedly believe in, but no one's done it before. So they can't even envision it sometimes. Um, And so there's, there's a bit of trust that you have to, that has to go along with, um, you know, you have to trust yourself, I think at the end of the day. So having that balance, I think is important, like learning from others and trying to copy them and then being your own person and uh, trusting in yourself. It can get to a damaging point as well, to your point there in terms of mimicry and, we see it all the time. There's articles every day on LinkedIn about the habits of high performers and all that sort of stuff. And everyone's just trying to copy Michelle Obama. But it's not about that. It's about taking mm-hmm. that lesson and adapting it to yourself, which, you know, going back to my point mm-hmm. at the start is like, let's take these ideas from sports and, and translate them. But there needs to be an actual translation. You can't just rip it off directly. And I think it's the same with mm-hmm. this, this leadership theory. Is It's not about copying Richard Branson's breakfast and that making you a good leader, it's about having the self-awareness to synthesize it and say, okay, I'm going to do it this way. It's slightly different from the way Sir Richard has his eggs. Um, yeah. But yeah, it can be really damaging as well. And, and Gary Vaynerchuk's very uh, forthright about this. He's like, don't copy what I'm doing unless you're trying to buy the New York Jets, which is what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Um, which I, yeah. is a, <laughs> you know, it, it needs to be said because this stuff can kind of get out of control as well. Yeah. And I am all about learning best practices and trying to better yourself. But ultimately, I mean, you got to trust yourself. And that, that to me is the, the thing that when I, when I at least look around who is successful on the ice, who's successful around me in business, it's like, they're the ones that they're, they're not um, cocky, but they're confident. Mm-hmm. Cause they've done the hard work to analyze all the best approaches out there. And there's no, they're not, you know, blinded. They're not, they're not just singly focused, but they've with all of that hard work, you know, the practice, if you will, when they're in game time, like they, they believe in themselves and they're, they're confident. Um, and so, yeah, there's this, there's a the thing that I see too many people doing is um, like uh, trying to be like someone else and, 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 you know, when I was playing hockey and, and, you know, a little girl or a little boy would say, I want to be like you and I grew up. You know, I'm like, you should be better than me. You should try to be sort of like me, but you should be better than me. That's what you should be aiming for. And so it's not complete mimicry. It's, it's about taking what works and making it better, in my opinion. And uh, yeah, so that's why I love reading, you know, I nerd out over business books all the time. <laughs> <laughs> My buddy Sonny Verma put it the best way I've ever heard it. And he said, the successful people that he's been around, he's like, they're unapologetically themselves. And I, I love that. And mm. that was their secret source was that they were unapologetic about being themselves and that, that shone through for them. Interesting. My business partners just moved to Boston. So I'm coming for a visit next time I'm there, but where can people find you? How can they follow along with your journey, both personally and, and with the Sports Innovation Lab? Where can they find your work? Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, um, on Twitter, at Angela Ruggiero, um, A-N-G-E-L-A-R-U-G-G-I-E-R-O. One of these uh, confusing Italian last names. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but we're in Boston, and certainly we've got a, um, we've got a link on our website, sportsilab.com. Uh, send me a note and, you know, someone from my team will alert me if you're in town and yeah, uh, 
definitely love uh, love hearing from people and and particularly if you're in the sports tech industry and doing something cool we I want to make sure I, I know who you are and what you're up to and um, yeah Boston's a fun city it's cold I grew up in LA so I, I I'm not a fan of the cold um, but it's a killer sports town tons of technology here and uh, and a really enriching environment with all the universities we have and incredibly small. It's small. You can walk across it. If you're, uh, you, you know, you got your Fitbit on or your Apple Watch, you'll you'll get your steps in. But uh, it's well, I like that about Boston. You 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 can actually be a part of certain neighborhoods and um, and not feel as overwhelmed as New York. New York's fun to visit. I love being in New York. But yeah, uh, Boston's a, a fun smaller town. <laughs> it is definitely, and. Don't worry about the confusing Italian last name. My surname's Royal, which should be easy to get for English speakers, but uh, it gets misspelt and mispronounced all the time. So um, don't worry about that. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah, you got you to own it. You got to own your name. <laughs> that's yeah. it. Angela, this has been fantastic. So much, um, so many learnings for all of the listeners um, for the show. So thank you for coming on. You've given up part of your Saturday and I'm very grateful for that. And um, yeah, I'm going to be following along and I hope other people will follow along as, as you're on your journey as well. So thank you very much, Angela. My pleasure. Uh, keep up the good work. Keep uh, exposing uh, the world to your thinking and, and all the great people you bring on. Wonderful. Thank you very much. At this stage of the show, Most podcasts will ask you to go and leave them a five-star rating, but I'd rather you go and check out Leaders in Sport. I've got an exclusive offer for you to claim one of 100 free trials of their online membership with unlimited access for a month. The Leaders Performance Institute gives you members-only access to their entire catalogue of content, which includes contributions from many of the guests you've heard on this podcast. As a member, you'll get full access to daily articles, deep dive performance reports, industry trends, and event videos. Plus, I'll be writing a monthly column throughout 2019. There's only 100 free trials, so jump on this now before they run out. Visit leadersinsport.com forward slash Cody to claim your free membership for the month. The Where Others Won't podcast is recorded at Apollo Studios in downtown Toronto and is produced and edited by Adam Esker. You can book me to speak by the Where Others Won't book or send me an email at codyroyal.com.